Hello and welcome to Let Them Eat Cake, episode 36. My name is Jack. My co-hosts are John and Ace. Today we're talking to Bozistan, a content creator who focuses on the history of Islamic countries. But before that, let's get to some headlines. First up, the United States and Iran have been planning to make a prisoner exchange for multiple weeks now and recently conducted that prisoner swap. Uh, opinions on it are mixed, with some saying it's bad and legitimizes the Iranian regime, and others saying as long as lives are saved, negotiations are good. Others are criticizing because the deal didn't come with any nuclear-related deals, despite the new secret nuclear deal currently underway and has been underway for months, um, and reportedly pretty good progress on it too. Other critics claim correctly that this isn't diplomacy and hasn't furthered any diplomatic good between Iran and America. The Iranian officials literally refused to meet to negotiate the deal, so if that tells you anything if they're not coming to the table then they're not trying to improve diplomacy it's, it's pretty simple here uh, this you could consider almost a good faith testing from both sides because america was releasing frozen funds as a part of the sanctions frozen funds that were rightfully iran's because they sold yes. oil yeah they were it was iranian it was iranian money that was frozen due, due to sanctions um, this comes before the Iran nuclear deal actually goes ahead, with a chance of it actually being successful. Uh, Iran also benefits from a PR win, considering that this is the anniversary of Gina Armini being murdered by Iran. That was only a couple of days before the, all this went down. And I was, I was just going to add, uh, and still, that when they unfreeze the abscess, it's happened to be on 9-11. Yeah. So there's all these... PR blunders and all these mistakes that America seems to be making. Um, but yeah, so st to stay in the region, uh, John's going to be talking about Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh, of course, being the most internationally recognized name for the disputed territory. It's also known as Artsakh. On September 20th, Azerbaijan announced a so-called anti-terrorist operation in the disputed territory after two Azeri civilians and seven soldiers were allegedly killed by landmines. This was a key point in Azerbaijan's justification for the anti-terrorist operation. Even still, negotiations pretty much started in the first day with the Arsak militias. Armenia completely stood down and the negotiations pretty much started right away, which is to be expected because if the militias don't have any backing from Armenia. And then even the last war, Azerbaijan obliterated so many assets. Pretty much Armenia only had basic artillery. So the conflict has been pretty much frozen since the 90s after the fall of the USSR. Armenia used to have the advantage and they took over this disputed territory, but the territory as it remains today that is under, technically it's autonomous. It is just this section that we're really talking about now. Azerbaijan has basically taken everything else back, but this has an ethnically distinct Armenian population to this region, uh, and it's a very old region with a lot of heritage involved with it. Nobody has made any real effort to actually resolve the conflict, so it's always been boiling over in a ceasefire rotation as Azerbaijan increasingly got stronger. A big part of this especially came after Ukraine, because uh, Europe needed to buy their fossil fuels from someone else that happened to be Azerbaijan. So this whole uh, ethnic cleansing, heavily financed by Europe. So Armenia has called out Russia because, I mean, Russia has failed them so many times. The CSTO is a absolute joke. And then uh, Russia is trying to paint it like Armenia is like being like taken over by uh, American CIA stuff and 
Western agendas. The United Nations and basically everyone recognizes that this territory belongs to Azerbaijan. It's always been recognized like that. So technically, under the international law, it's always been occupied by Armenia, even the territories that it took back already. This is the biggest issue here because it have, I don't know, I, 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 what did you say, black and white? You know, the international law has to be black and white with things. Is that good? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's also important to emphasize that, like, like you mentioned earlier with uh, the European gas and stuff, um, Azerbaijan has essentially, like, politically fortified itself in a lot of ways. Um, They get a lot of backing from Turkey, both in terms of, like, intelligence and weaponry, Israel as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And really, just because of international law and just because the U.S. generally doesn't have an interest in the Caucasus region, the U.S. isn't going to do much, even though they have troops like stationed in Armenia. Well, and they did say, a- so that's the thing is this leading up to it, literally the day before they were like, said some statement like we are going to protect Armenia. You know, basically right. they're like gonna, they're, gonna, they're only talking about Armenia proper. Right. They they're going to talk about Armenia, the yeah. disputed area. That's the yeah. key. So it's always the key words. So this is the thing. If you saw Biden's UN speech, he was specifically saying like wars of conquest. You know, it's like as long as you're not expanding your territory, bomb whoever you want, because right. America never expands. So we can just be, right. you know, use that word. The U.S. has actually been Lincoln has been there multiple times throughout the year. Uh, everyone knew this was coming. So that's the whole thing about the whole like landmine terror thing. Oh no, our guys stepped on landmines and they like, that's the reason for invading is because of landmines. When, you know, we don't even know for sure if it happened. I kind of have a conspiracy brain type of thing where Armenia basically agreed to give them the territory a long time ago and they just needed like a provocation to do all of this. Not that it's like a false flag. The militia would eventually do something that our, uh, Azerbaijan would make up as a provocation. It's not like they needed a false flag. I'm not saying that the, you know, mine attack didn't happen or anything. So because the United Nations and basically everyone recognizes that the area is Azerbaijan, the U.S. would be speaking out both sides of their mouth, recognizing Ukraine's occupied territory as the main reason for supplying them weapons. So the Biden admin has been specifically focused on, again, rhetoric around the wars of conquest and ending that. So especially the Armenia diaspora kind of see this even as hypocritical that he was talking about ending wars of conquest because they feel like this is a war of conquest against them. And they obviously have a history of genocide. Hitler quoted them in the justification for eradicating Mm -hmm. people. Uh, saying nobody remembers the what happened to the Armenians, and that's why nobody's going to give a shit about what I'm doing now. Like, Hitler really said that. The United States is basically risking being a hypocrite on the international stage, so it comes to a matter of face, especially, for not standing up to this. I think preventing ethnic cleansing is more important than stopping wars of conquest. And 28,000 people have already had to flee the area. I saw this uh, Turkish propagandist, and he's like, He's like, look, they're all leaving under at their own will. And then uh, uh, anyone who's familiar with Always Sunny, there's this whole thing where Dennis is talking about, but the implication. And like, that was another thing where somebody posted that in response to this guy. And also, like, we see these soldiers shooting into houses. Like, that's one of the most popular videos going around right now. The shooting into houses and another one where they shoot at monuments, along with like the line of cars and evacuating and how... There's literally like nothing in the cars. It's just like they're full of people. So they're barely bringing anything with them. They're leaving a lot behind. And not only that, 
as this is going on, there was a gas explosion where between 80 or 150 people died in that explosion. Do you have time for a funeral when you're undergoing an ethnic cleansing? And it, I mean, it literally is an ethnic cleansing. They're removing the Armenians from the area. But Azerbaijan did post a video. They got all the camera crews to make sure they were seen handing out like crackers or stuff to one car of people. They made sure to show that. Another thing to mention is that like Nagorno-Karabakh, there's like one road <laughs> that leads into the area called the Lachin Corridor. So yes, therefore, that's, that's it would be very... Bring up. Yeah, this yeah, corridor is important. It would be very easy to cut off that road because it's just one of them. And basically, that's pretty much what Azerbaijan did. Like the area had been has been like blockaded for nine to ten months, with no like barely any humanitarian relief of any kind coming through. Like a day before the invasion, I think they let some Red Cross trucks go through, but that's like far and few between for almost a year of blockading. And so you gotta understand this blockade led to like a really serious shortage in food and medical supplies and then when Armenia started shelling the area I'm sorry Azerbaijan started shelling the area and then you know there were reports that the electricity was cut off in a lot of the area in a lot of the um, uh, areas of the region of Nagorno-Karabakh I don't know a better way to phrase this but it's like a tender wound pretty much it's like you just got stabbed and you know someone's gonna like chop at you with the machete it's a very easy situation to exploit. The kind of humanitarian situation there was already in, in shambles, mm -hmm. right? And these people have kind of been through a lot of suffering in the last year or so, or the last three years even. I mean, Armenian history that, is not very right. Like, yeah, kind. exactly. It's not. It's not a very yeah. It's not a great history to be a part of, necessarily. And they but, have um, like one of the one of the higher di diasporas out there, and that's yeah, no, actually have... part of the state's policy is to disperse their people so they can have more influence in other countries to help them. They, they I'm pretty sure they're, they're, they're di their diaspora is larger than the population of the actual country. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the kind of situation. That and that's in. the only way the country gets money too, is them sending money. Remittances. Yep. But yeah, it was, it was already a really fragile situation. And then what happened happened and it's just kind of really shitty all around. Like I said, America has made some comes. They didn't make promises. They're just like, will protect Armenia. So if there's there's some stuff in the south that we could see Azerbaijan want to take too. So if Azerbaijan takes that and America does nothing, then we'll see. They'll, they'll look really bad if they let that happen. So we'll see what happens there. And and it's funny that people are always bitching about di diplomacy, but they haven't looked at like how much like America has been the ones trying to settle this fucking conflict in this last year sticking to disputed territories so there's been an interesting situation in kosovo northern kosovo as you should say basically what happened was is on september 24th in the uh village of ban banyiska i believe it's called banyiska i think is the pronunciation these armored trucks blocked a bridge that kind of goes in and out of this small village mind you this village is in the north of kosovo so the north of kosovo is the majority serb area the rest of it is more or less majority Albanian. The police go to see what's going on and they get shot at. And so there's about 30 gunmen who are in these in these uh, big like trucks. Uh, I, I heard like a, a couple of them were riding around on like an ATV. The, the police confiscated the ATV. And so, yeah, they were they were basically there was there was a shooting. Police officer was killed. A Kosovo police officer was killed. 
about three of the gunmen were killed. And basically everyone in the Kosovar government described this incident almost as soon as it happened as a terrorist attack by like organized criminal gangs or criminals sponsored by the Serbian state. Obviously Serbian president comes out and he immediately denies these claims. And as like the shooting ensued between the Kosovar police and these uh, probably mostly Serbian gunmen, they forced their way into a monastery and took up positions in like the monastery courtyard. If, if you go to a lot of the Balkans, it's not necessarily like super mountainous, but it's like really hilly. And so a lot of these guys kind of like took to the hills to like take positions and stuff. And, you know, in the aftermath of it, uh, about like six to nine uh, of these gunmen have been arrested. They've confiscated large amounts of weapons, including rocket launchers and like RPGs, um, ATVs, grenade, vehicles like ATVs, grenades, and just an insane amount of rifles that these guys had on them. These guys had, were like. Uh, Can I just also add that they had mm -hmm. a? They were using a DJI drone for reconnaissance as well. They did. That... Yes, they did. Have, they did have a drone. That, yeah. Yeah, a lot of these guys were wearing masks, they had uniforms, you know, the whole thing looked very professional, which is why a lot of people in the, in the uh, Kosovar government were very quick to say that it was a terror attack. Now, what makes this really interesting is there was some recent drone footage released by the Kosovar Interior Ministry today that shows basically the gunmen are all gathered at the monastery and they zoom in on this guy. And the guy that they zoom in on is allegedly this guy named Milan Radiocic. And he's a Kosovo Serb politician. So he's a Serbian, you know, grew up in Kosovo, born there, this, that, and the other. And he's um, the vice president of the uh, Serb List Party, or the Srpska List Party, I think it's called in Serbian. And that's basically, he's the vice president of this party, and this party is basically like the dominant Serbian political force in Kosovo. That makes things extremely weird. And this guy, Radiocic, he's got a bit of a, some shady allegations against them, we'll say. He's also a businessman, and um, his businesses are mostly related in like, you know, trade and transport across like Kosovo, Serbia, Montenegro, a couple of other countries. I was gonna Balkan say, countries. is he a smuggler? <laughs> Allegedly. So he is believed to be part of this uh, organized crime group called the uh, Zanko uh, Velisinovic organized crime group. Now, I don't know if that's what they call themselves, but that's kind of the moniker that's been attached to them because they're headed by this guy named Zvanko Veselinovic and his brother Zharko. And Radiocic, the guy I was talking about earlier, businessman, politician, he calls this guy his godfather. Now, whether or not he's actually his godfather or that's just like what he calls him, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. But basically, this group has been alleged to be involved in smuggling of illicit goods, narcotics, weapons, money, all that good stuff. And they've also are like engaging these like quid pro quo uh, deals, we'll call them, with politicians where they allegedly give them some money and then the uh, politicians will then allow them to control certain territory for their alleged smuggling activities. And then they'll also on top of that reward them with these construction contracts and things of that nature. Where Radiocic and Veselinovic enter the news is around like January 18, this uh, Ser Serbian politician from Kosovo as well, he's a Kosovo Serb, 
named Oliver Ivanovich was basically killed in this drive-by shooting back in January 2018 uh, while trying to enter his office. And so later on in November of 2018, Veselinovich, Radiocic, and a couple other guys are named in the indictment where it is basically alleged that they were involved in killing this guy. Three days later, the police raid Radiocic's home. He escapes. He goes to Serbia. And he gets interviewed by police in Serbia and denies any and all involvement with the murder. And at the time, President, Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic basically said that the Kosovo police, he maintained his innocence and said that the Kosovo police wanted to arrest him so that they could make connections between the murder and the Serbian government. So the murder of Ivanovic and the Serbian government. So you kind of see what we're getting at here. We have this case that this guy is involved in previously where Vucic is saying, oh, the reason Kosovo police want to arrest Radiocic is because they want to make a connection between us and the murder of this Kosovo Serb politician. And now it's kind of like almost like a parallel but very different situation is going on where Kosovar authorities are treating this recent attack, which there's like some evidence that Radiocic was allegedly spotted there being involved. He's like armed with a gun and everything. He's like in full uniform. And they, they're treating it like a terrorist attack. And they're basically saying that it's carried out by people who are sponsored by Serbia. And it's, if you can see the connection there, right? Like there's like this whole thing, this guy has ties to Belgrade, this, that, and the other. Speaking of connections and sorry to interrupt. Um, mm-hmm. It would be interesting. This would take some checking into. But the, Serbia was one of the people who was principal in arming the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. I don't. I think it was on the Azerbaijan side, though, not the. Oh, did they? I mean, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, but they're not. I mean, they they're known for arms smuggling. You know, but so it's not surprising. Yeah, but it just so you know there might be a connection there that that was a coincidence. Yeah, and so. It is also important to note that Radiocic and the Veselinovich brothers, along with a couple other guys who were involved in like this alleged crime group that they're a part of, have been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department. So it's like those three and then like eight other guys were put on sanctions back in December 2018. And then like two dozen businesses associated with these people across Kosovo, Bulgaria, and Serbia were also added to that sanctions list. Like, let's just say these guys acted completely independently and they were just like pissed off at the Kosovo government, which is like a reasonable explanation because Kosovo, Kosovo Serbs are pissed off at the Kosovo government. That's, yeah. that's a thing. We have, we have it's, plenty of episodes on it. Yeah. Check, <laughs> check out, check out our episode with Tom. We have a special on, on Kosovo specifically and a special on, 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 on a full episode on the genocide in Bosnia. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty much one of the worst instances of violence between Serbs and the Kosovo government since, like, you know, the formation of the country back in 2009. It's, it's very sketchy. And it's not like this is out of nowhere. It's been, there has been Right, there's, there's been, like, these, yeah, these mounting tensions. And it should be noted, if I didn't mention earlier, Vucic, obviously, he denies the allegations that he's... Yeah he or Belgrade is in any way involved with this. And he does blame it on like, you know, the pressure that the Kosovo government is putting on Serbs 
in Kosovo. And, you know, the, the whole thing with the license plates and just kind of the, the elections and they feel as though, not necessarily feel, but it's also kind of true that a lot of their, you know, a lot of Serbians are just like not electing to participate in like the public, I guess you could say like service. So like the police, the military, politics, things like that. So there's no real representation for them. And that's all for the underreported headlines this week. Uh, speaking of underreported, I guess you could say, I don't know if you could, understated, one of the most understated events in contemporary history in regards to extremism in the region commonly referred to as the greater Middle East is the Grand Mosque siege. Nobody really knows about this. Outside of the Arabic-speaking world. And the most yeah, except, except the Arabic-speaking <laughs> world. But, I mean, we're making videos for uh, people to understand that world. Exactly. So. Yeah. It's been something. Had, Ace and I have been talking about job. doing something on this Grand Mosque siege for so long. This one is a, it's a, it's a, a serious one about genocide this time. Yeah, this one's really good. And you, there's a you lot. Should, and, th- and I'm going to tell you all right now. Go watch Bazistan's videos. They're they're very good and very concise as far as YouTube content goes. There's not a lot of good YouTube content out there on history, but he does well, a good job. Well, especially the history uh, of like how Islamic extremism came about. Right. And he does a really good job of not only presenting the information in like a fun, accurate, and like thorough way, but he keeps it concise. So if you just got like 20 minutes... For 30 minutes to watch one of his videos you know have it and and probably like for most people any one of those things is going to be something they never knew about until watching the videos because like i one day i found about uh, out about the grand siege and i said i wonder if anyone's done a video about it and then that's how i found his channel because like nobody but him there's others now i think but nobody but him basically had done one by that point we have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire, and that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own, any institution but our own. Hello, I'm Bazistan. I'm a YouTuber named Bazistan. I mostly do historical videos, uh, mostly towards the Middle East, and this mask is just a part of the character. <laughs> You're supposed to be a sultan, right? Yes, the Grand Sultan. <laughs> What's your favorite time period? Um, I, I kind of like the post-World War II. All of that kind of starts, as far as like the militant stuff, that kind of starts in Afghanistan. But before we get there, since you said that you like the post-World War II period, you want to talk a general rundown between the colonialism period after World War II, Suez Crisis type thing? And uh, the significant events before the Grand Mosque siege. Right after World War II, a lot of Arab nations uh, were gaining their independence or they're being granted their independence by the British or the French. And uh, this was a very interesting time. There's a lot of like, you could go case by case, but a lot of these nations began to look towards their own ideas of a nation state. So during this time, you'd see different forms of Arab nationalism appear Uh, You would see a lot of military coups by Arab nationalist governments. You had one in Egypt led by the free officer movement. And then you had a lot of uh, copycat free officer movements. You'd see one in Iraq. You'd see one in Syria. These were mostly against the monarchies that were uh, in power from the World War I period or right after World War II. So 
you would have like the uh, Hashemis in Iraq, they got overthrown. You had King uh, Farouk in Egypt get overthrown. And this had this led to like a little Cold War between the Arab nations called the Arab Cold War. So you had the monarchies of the Saudis and the Jordanians uh, and other Gulf uh, monarchies. They began to work together to uh, combat the rising Arab nationalist governments, which at times were socialist aligned or Soviet aligned, depending on which ideological branch they followed. But then even then you still had your own little internal movements within like uh, the Arab nationalist parties. You had like your Ba'ath party members who might dislike the, the communist party members and things of that sort. Iraq would have their own internal coups between uh, the Ba'athists and Arab nationalists. And then they would have another coup in 1979 be between Ba'athists that led to the rise of Saddam. Syria would have their own coup after the creation of the United Arab Republic, which was like a Arab nationalist union between Egypt and Syria. So that was another case of internal Arab uh, uh, fighting or drama. And then uh, at one point, uh, monarchists tried making their own unis ca uh, union called the Arab Federation. This was between the Iraqis and the Jordanians, but the Iraqi uh, monarchy got overthrown. And I think the whole immediate family was killed by the free officers there. So then there was this back and forth pull between like a Arab nationalistic, Arab uh, socialism, a Ba'ath party, at times Soviet aligned, coming into conflict with the more we would see as conservative religious Saudis uh, who were the main pusher. And then this was kind of the situation until the death of Gamal Abdel Nasser in the Six Day War where the ideology of Arab nationalism was uh, really put to the test. People began to see this idea with more critical lens. Um, so that kept on happening. Then he had Anwar Sadat. He really tried to, uh, I guess we, what we could say is push Egypt or bring Egypt towards a more US aligned, a more liberal type of viewpoint. He made a negotiation with Israel. If I remember correctly, he was even beginning to buy arms from the United States. Uh, and then he was assassinated. That was uh, that's a very big event within the Middle East. And then uh, you would see the Saudis, their oil money was now uh, funding the nation. You know, uh, American oil workers would go into Saudi Arabia. TVs were being introduced, cars were being introduced. You know, women were now being uh, filmed. Women were now, uh, they were seen more in society. They weren't doing things that were traditional for uh, uh, Arab women within the Saudi customs. So then this led to a rising the conservative elements within Saudi Arabia. You could really see where, where the criticism was being pushed towards, which was the westernization and modernization attempts by the Saudi government. And then uh, you would see this explode violently with the 1979 Grand Mosque uh, seizure. It's an interesting part of history because a lot of people simplify the problems in the Middle East as far as towards the West into like one thing. And it's it's, with, it's always like the the evil America. Somehow every problem is related back to them. <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't understand how it came down to that. I mean, like, I think the Suez crisis should be enough for people to be like, oh, America's not bad. France is, you know? <laughs> 
I mean, I let's feel, be honest. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I, at least from my viewpoint, I think uh, a lot of people who hold like everything bad in the Middle East is because of the U.S. I think it's like some uh, PTSD of like the Iraq War, like the uh, mm-hmm. U.S. foreign policy was so terrible in the Iraq War, the handling of it. Now there's this concern that since America was so wrong, now every every slight somehow America has to have their hand behind. I think the anti-Americanism really started with the Iranian revolution because they backed the Shah. Yeah. After 1979, that's true. We were victims, especially my generation, that suffered from this a great deal. The Crown Prince traces most of Saudi Arabia's problems to the year 1979, when the Ayatollah Khomeini established an Islamic theocracy next door in Iran. The same year, religious extremists in Saudi Arabia took over Islam's holiest site, the Grand Mosque in Mecca. In order to appease their own religious radicals, the Saudis began clamping down and segregating women from everyday life. But the Grand Mosque siege, we've touched on it before. I don't want to say it's funny and comical, but it almost Mm -hmm. is the way I describe it. You can elaborate more into it, but just this guy who doesn't even speak the language that people are at Mecca speaking gets on the microphone and starts yelling and then like guns start going (laughs) off. Excluding all the death part and fighting at a very religious uh, sacred site, there's a lot of humor in it. The uh, leaders of the mosque seizure, they proclaim one of the one of their leaders as the Mehdi. So this Mehdi is like almost like a messianic figure in uh, Islamic eschatology. So then there's like a lot of requirements for what will count as the Mahdi if we're looking at like traditional Sunni Hadith viewpoints. So it's things like he will come from the tribe of the prophet. He will have a broad forehead and his nose. I don't remember all of it by heart. So what happened there is they looked at one of the co-leaders and they're like, whoa, you have a broad forehead, something with the nose. And they said, your last name is Abdullah. So you are the Mehdi, <laughs> that uh, a lot of people have foreheads and broad, or broad foreheads and noses named Abdullah. So that was an interesting thing to see happen. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, when they seized Masjid, it was early, uh, early Fedra prayers. These guys were expecting that, uh, talking to the microphone and declared that the Mehdi has arrived. Everyone give bayah, give allegiance to the Mehdi. And then, you know, the judgment day will happen in a few years. But when they went to do this huge speech in Arabic, most of the people there weren't Arabs, so they didn't know Arabic. And then even if someone knew Arabic, there's a guy waving a gun talking about how they're the Mehdi, you know, that's gonna, that's very confusing, you know? (laughs) So then um, that was one part. Another interesting part throughout the siege was the Saudi military response at times. Um, It wasn't the most tactical, as people would say. So it it was a constant story of the Saudis learning how to conduct urban warfare against an entrenched enemy. That was, um, there was a lot of things like, we should just walk up to the gate with all of our soldiers and then that wouldn't work. There were a few cases of Juhayman's men opening the gates and letting Saudi forces come in before closing the gates on them and then ambushing people. So there was a lot of back and forth with the uh, urban warfare. Um, And then there was a lot of um, diplomacy over uh, 
who should be allowed to help in retaking the mosque. Um, there was talk of having the Americans or the Jordanians, but the Saudis had, funny enough, picked the French, which should really, which should show that like at this time the U.S. wasn't seen as like the head of counterterrorism in the Middle East because. The U.S. was only supplying the Saudis with tear gas, but the French, uh, I think the French at the time were one of the few nations that had a very solid counterterrorism urban warfare uh, unit. So that's what the Saudis were like. We'll get the GIGN guys. That, that went on for about two weeks at the same time as the Grand Mosque was being uh, taken. You had the Katif uprising in eastern Saudi Arabia. So these two events one happening in the West, one happening in the East for the Saudis was very uh, complex for them. This was a, a fear of a, of a Shiite uprising in the Eastern provinces inspired by the Iranian revolution and then having their own internal Sunni rebellion happening within the city of Mecca. So for the Saudis, 1979 and these two events happening back, uh, back to back was like a, a, a huge national threat to... Uh, to Saudi stability. Many of the uh, followers of Juhayman were pushed into the underground section of the Masjid al-Haram. So if this is the Masjid al-Haram top, then there's like a, a little basement section at the bottom. So many of the uh, people who were who had survived initially fighting on in the Masjid al-Haram were pushed into the Kabu section. So the Kabu section were just a whole bunch of underground uh, study rooms and hallways all interconnected but after two weeks of fighting it's going to be dark in there so the Saudis would have to bring their forces down they have to walk down a whole bunch of stairs and hope they don't get shot in the dark and this is a, this is an urban combat nightmare this would be something hard to do for modern you know special forces today so then imagine being a uh, 1979 Saudi troop. This is the first case of massive terrorism in your country, right? So what had happened is that these French forces came up with an idea to drill at the top of these basements and then they'll drop like a sleeping agents into the uh, Kabu section and then it would sedate a lot of people. Now, uh, we don't have official numbers of civilian casualties from this. Uh, I guess we, we might, but uh, the viewpoint is that civilian casualties were very high throughout the entire fighting. So once these uh, sleeping gas, for lack of better words, was spread throughout the Kabu, uh, French-trained Saudi guys would go into the uh, into the Kabu, the underground basement section. Already by this time, many of the militants and fighters were out of ammo. A lot of them were hungry. A lot of them were even just ideologically tired because... Uh, the Mehdi isn't supposed to die at the first fight, and their supposed Mehdi was blown up by a Saudi hand grenade, or he was killed by Juhayman himself. There's some dispute on how he died. By the end, Saudi forces were able to find the remaining uh, militants. They're out of ammo, tired, and they all surrendered. There, there was no like electrocuting. There was a few, there was a lot of beheadings, public beheadings. Uh, in while they were seizing it. Or, oh no, that, that was I know afterwards all they cut all their heads off. That's kind of the punishment in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Once the uh Mehdi had died, a lot of people's ideological convictions began to shake because within the Islamic viewpoint, uh 
the Mahdi doesn't die at the first battle. Also, within the Islamic viewpoint of the like traditional Sunni Hadith viewpoints, there's the Mahdi doesn't fight in Masjid al-Haram. So already there are so many gross violations going on. What was Saudi Arabia like? before We were living a very normal life, like the rest of the Gulf countries. Women were driving cars, there were movie theaters in Saudi Arabia, women worked everywhere. We were just normal people, developing like any other country in the world, until the events of 1979. This is like one of the things that I propose, because if you look at a lot of people's motivations for Al-Qaeda, it's not always like anti-U.S. motivations, and saying that like Al-Qaeda is basically providing them arms to wage the revolution. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people joined with this more revolutionary mindset. If you saw the the Mauritanian movie, even in that, it shows that his motivations were never anti-US. And he joined Al-Qaeda way back when it was like fighting against Nejibullah's government, who was communist backed. It's just uh, the transition to being anti-America just always never made sense to me. And which which kind of plays into like why is it it was so obvious that 9-11 was coming but it makes sense to me looking back of why they wouldn't even suspect yeah the most i i realized at least when i've been doing my reading and researching on osama when he, he was in that uh, stage before he committed 9-11 but like had been on the road to doing the embassy bombings my my viewpoint has always been one of like um he had gone well he started adopting a conspiracy theory viewpoint which was like all the global non-muslim political powers are working together to uh destroy the muslim world you know that's how he saw it one of his uh, personal bodyguards abu jandel had described that osama would go on rants for a few days about uh, how america is occupying the holy lands i.e mecca and medina and then that was uh, Osama's attempt of trying to gain the attention of Abu Jandal, trying to recruit him at first. And then how I kind of view it was that uh, Osama had reached this, this conspiracy theory viewpoint where everything must be a conspiracy theory because he had some form of criticism of American US policy that I think most people would see that, you know, you can see where the lines are drawn, American support for Israel, so that you can see where the criticism of American foreign policy there is, but then also what you would see is he'd say things like the UN mission in Somalia is actually a Christian invasion to destroy the the Somali Muslims, which that's more conspiracy theory. And even if we look at the UN makeup, there are a lot of Pakistani UN uh, forces there. And then also if we just look at what the U.S. was doing in the 90s and in the 80s, there was the whole war in Bosnia. And then NATO was bombing Serb forces in Bosnia and Kosovo. And then you also had the Americans supplying the Mujahideen factions against the Soviets. But for Osama, since he was in like this conspiracy theory circle, those things weren't valid. But him drawing his own lines were, were valid. The, the what's interesting is this if you start looking at when he's in the compound in the, the prison of his own design mm-hmm. um he becomes a very different person and like like i don't mm-hmm. think he prayed every day even yeah i'm just talking out my ass this isn't like fact i'm just oh, okay <laughs> yeah no 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 we we often like sometimes whenever we talk about like uh bin laden 
a question mm-hmm. that comes up. It's like, do you do you really think he was praying five times a day after a certain point in his life? Do you really think he was praying five times a day? And it's like it's just an interesting question <laughs> that comes up yeah. some, sometimes. How do you think it got to the point where it shifted towards the anti-Americanism? Because it never makes sense to me that America is Al-Qaeda's enemy. And we talked about the conspiracy part of bin Laden, but, you know, he had a bunch of people under him. And it just never made sense to me. Like, uh, uh, you have uh, Khatoub or Khatoub in, um, or Khabib or something. What's his name in the Chechnya? What's the Chechnya guy's name? Khatoub. Khatoub, yeah. Yeah, so he's literally like begging Bin Laden for help in Chechnya. They're getting like slaughtered. And Bin Laden was like, no, you don't understand. I have to bomb America. Because it's like, yeah, for America, they back the Bosnian Muslims. Joe Biden is up there talking about how he he compares it to the Holocaust and how there's Mm -hmm. Muslim camps and talking about how we need boots on the ground to fight for these people. Chechnya, obviously, you have Russia just destroy them. I would consider it a genocide especially the second war with Putin. And also, they definitely did a genocide in Afghanistan, specifically targeting military-aged males, the scorched earth campaign that they've had in the villages. Because, like, America helped out so many of these people. Yeah, when the the topic of 9-11 was pulled up, a lot of people within the, like, Al-Qaeda High Shura Council were voting against committing 9-11. A lot of them were Yeah, like, the, oh. guy who's the guy who's the emir right now, he was one of the main advocates of not doing it. And he was right because he was like, no, 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 America will destroy us. Like, <laughs> we should not do this. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, Saif al-Adil, uh, the current leader of Al-Qaeda, um, so before Ayman Zawahiri joined Al-Qaeda, he was running his own little group uh, called Islamic Jihad. And then what had happened is that Islamic Jihad said, okay, Bin Laden, we will uh, we'll give bayat to you. We'll absorb ourselves into your global struggle. And then funny enough, he'll say, fella Adil, who was all like, yo, Bin Laden, do not merge with this group. <laughs> I like to imagine because Saif al-Adl was Egyptian, he was kind of like, like Bin Laden, this guy's a fucking nerd, bro. Like, (laughs) what's funny, what's funny is, is, remember we found out that it wasn't even supposed to be Zahwari? Like, it was, there was like another guy who was going to be the second in command after Bin Laden died, who was from his like jihad, he like died in a boating accident or something stupid. Would you, would you say it's ultimately fair then that like the reason 9-11 9-11 kind of went through is because more or less like bin laden had his own personal vendetta against the americans for their troop presence in like the gulf can or i can you... i interrupt real quick yes yeah. osama specifically said he would leave it up to the council so it seems like he even was kind of unsure about doing it i think there's a way to get to, to ping pong off both which is um i think uh, through all the readings I've done uh, about Osama, Osama has always been described somewhat as a, a very calm, quiet guy. But when he has his mind to something, there's no way you can steer him away from it. When he went to first fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets, so many people in his family was like, Osama, don't do this. This is, you you're, you have so much potential, don't, don't go to Afghanistan. And then people said, okay, you can go to Pakistan, just don't go into Afghanistan. And then he on his own, free will and a little bit of convincing from Abdullah Azam went into Afghanistan. And then even when he was making the uh, Al-Masada training camp in Afghanistan that led to the Battle of Jeji, almost, I'm not, I'm not even joking when I say almost everyone was saying to Osama, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. Please don't do it. And the only reason Osama was able to continue 
with his Yaji Almasada training camp was because he was the biggest financier. So uh, I think for Osama, it was his own personal, uh, I guess vendetta is the correct term. And he was like, yeah, I think the council will do it. But hey, you guys, nudge, nudge, you know, should really help a brother out. And then uh, from what I saw, I've noticed there's been a slight arguments about how ignorant other al-Qaeda leaders were of the whole extent of the 9-11 plan. Uh, there's, I know there's this uh, viewpoint in the early 2000s, which was that, oh, most of the al-Qaeda leadership just didn't know. But uh, ever since Osama's uh, personal letters in the Abbottabad compound were able to be translated or deciphered, there's been like a small uh, growing viewpoint of, oh, they knew the plan. And a lot of these guys can't say, oh, they were ignorant of how deadly the 9-11 plot or the after effects were going to be. Do you ultimately think it's it's fair to say then that even though, I guess, you know, 9-11 obviously happened, but that the majority of Al-Qaeda's leadership was at least initially opposed to the idea? Yeah, I, I think initially a lot of them were opposed to it just because we have other targets. Why are we hitting this bin Laden? Please don't do that. We could hit other like embassies or whatnot. Um, but yeah, the, the 9-11 attack was like, it's in its own league, you know. The whole like anti-nationalist sentiment you have in um, a lot of these like uh, Muslim groups that we had just previously talked about. This is where like my conspiracy type of brain goes to is that um, and there is evidence to back this up. This is an entire like national security side. Like there's a whole theory that's developed into this, but basically Al Qaeda um, saw that the Soviets invading Afghanistan, it wasn't that it toppled the Soviet empire. It's that that invasion allowed for the Taliban to rise and put in a non-nationalist government. So it was more about goading America into attacking so that way they could get them in. And this is right in uh, the current Amir's journals to, I think, uh, KSM. Um, and there's another one that he's writing to. It might be Al-Libby, but it's two of the guys that were like almost instantly captured and poured in, put in Gitmo. And uh, 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 Adel is basically saying that uh, you guys are fucking idiots. Look what happened. All my best guys are dead. Like, And also at the same time, he's like, like oh like i love you brother you know like god bless you stuff like that at the same time and he's going back and forth between it but they're talking about how they want jordan or iraq or syria to be invaded and that they were going to eventually make essentially a triangle of death for the americans to, and like iraq and jordan wasn't the first invasion plan um or well, the second invasion plan after afghanistan so it seemed like the plan might have always been to actually get the Americans to invade Iraq or Jordan um, from Saudi Arabia. And we joke about it because, like, they were waiting for the Americans to overthrow Saddam, and then they just left, and, like, they're looking around, and now there's these tanks in Arabia, and their enemy, the king, is now a lot stronger because of it. And they're like, wow, well, all these tanks are here. Where where can we use them? Where can we get America to use them? And so, like... Um, not always, but recently, since I've read a lot of Bin Laden's uh, diaries and journals, I've adopted this mindset that I've kind of never even given any thought to. Going back to Afghanistan, and we mentioned Abdullah's um, 
a duel of as, um, assassination is something I love to debate with people because I am convinced mm -hmm. that Al-Qaeda did it. And if you look at Bin Laden, he's like, he's like, I wouldn't do that. I'm the guy's best friend. It was the Jews. <laughs> I got to disagree. I think it was either, uh, I have three contenders. So I think it was either the COD, the ISI. I, I don't think any non-state actor could have done it. But if I were to put my money on a non-state actor, I would put Hikmetiar. The reason I would, I was so shocked when like Bin Laden did it was um, just at least from the readings I've I've seen, Osama had so much like respect for Gazam that kind of like he would have to do an assassination while he's outside of the country against someone he respects and all his fellow fighters looked up to, and then uh, I think people talk about Zawahiri. Yeah, that's I, who I, it points to, actually. And, and the theory yeah. that I'm... It's not Bin Laden himself, but it's Sahuari. I just think the Jew excuse is silly. It is. <laughs> and sussy. I heard people blame America for it. I'm like, no, there's Americans would The Americans at this time wouldn't want to kill someone like Azam. You know? The Soviets yeah. were still withdrawing. They weren't even fully gone by this point. It's a, it's a very interesting time right after they withdraw. So like 89 to like 93, there's almost no information from that period, except for like eyewitness accounts and diaries and things like that. So it is kind of insane to me that the whole like idea that we were funding Al Qaeda to fight the Soviets the whole time. Well, not Al Qaeda, Just, but the Mujahideen. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about the conspiracy in general. I'm talking about always the theory, insane. But like that, you're no, no, insane. No, but, Sorry. But the whole the whole reason people think that is just because like Mujahideen was like kind of used just in a collective way, like they weren't specifically talking about any like Islamists. They were just kind of using the term as like a catch-all for anyone fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And it seems it just seems to be a lot of people make that connection based on the terminology that's being used. It's it's very annoying. Just yeah. to interject before you ask a question, I just wanted to say it was the right thing to do. They were intervening on stopping a genocide by helping, even though they backed kind of the wrong guy with Hikmichar, it was the right thing to do. Uh, they were being slaughtered. Anyway, Ace, uh, please ask a question. Honestly, I kind of just want to want to get into the Algerian civil war a little bit and sort of any Islamist or Al-Qaeda presence that was, that was there during like the, uh, they call it the Black Decade, correct? Yep. Yeah, and I just, I just kind of, cause, cause I just think there's a lot of when you like read about it, there's a lot of narratives that kind of go around, or when you hear about it from people, you know, there's like this narrative of kind of, it's, 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 it's a, it's a sort of like a similar, similar narrative to the, to the Soviet-Afghan war, where in which it's kind of like, on the one hand, you have the government being the government of Algeria claiming they're there to like stop terror to stop like you know chaos to stop these non-state actors but on the other hand we also see a lot of instances of like very extreme violence and massacres from like you know the state security forces basically and i, I just kind of i don't know wanted to i i saw you did a video on it so i just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on a lot of that just maybe we could run this down yeah, so for uh, just a quick gen uh, summary of the Algerian civil war, um, Algeria had entered a, an, a period where they were allowing elections, and then one of the main opposition were the FIS, the uh, 
Islamic Liberation Front, if I remember correctly. Let me look that up. I have it but, right uh, in front of me. Islamic Salvation Front. Salvation Front. There we go. So, yeah, the, the FIS was the main opponent or uh, opposition to the government. And when the FIS had ran, uh, they, they had won two-thirds of the vote, and they're going to do another set of elections. And the big concern, especially for the military, was that the FIS, once they have this supermajority, they're going to start changing the constitution, and they're going to change Algeria into an Islamic state like Iran. So the military enacted a coup. Uh, a very brutal crackdown happened. There was huge fist uh, uh, celebrations for the elections. There was huge fist uh, political camps. These were all cracked down by the military. So then what had happened is that a very quick insurgency would kick off. Uh, the fist initiate were expecting massive urban uprisings, but that didn't happen. So then they began to attack symbols of the Algerian government um, you know, police stations, sometimes they'd rob banks. But then the Islamist insurgency began to split. And this is kind of where you see the most extreme form of Islamism. Many of these guys are joined a group called the GIA. The GIA was first just a very hardened group. And then they came from veterans of the Soviet Afghan war and the Afghan civil war. This is where it's suspected that Osama bin Laden just to interject, and sorry to interrupt it, this is like when they came in, this period that I was talking about between 90 and 93 that we like don't know what's happening in Afghanistan, a lot of the fighters had left Afghanistan after that because the Najibullah's government had fell and they didn't want to be a part of Muslim infighting. So you see a spillover in a lot of these other insurgencies like Algeria at the time. Sorry about that. Continue, please. Uh, that's great information. So then... Um... These GIA fighters, they were funny enough called Afghans by everyone else. Um, these guys would return, they came in with hardened viewpoints, they were combat trained in some cases. And this is where it's suspected that Osama bin Laden was funneling money towards the GIA. If I remember correctly, Osama was in Sudan during this time. He was. So there we go. And then um, the GIA began to adopt a very harsh viewpoint, which was that our struggle against the Algerian state is a religious must. So if you do not join our struggle, then you're not a Muslim and you're, you know, you're open for killing. And the, the GIA did commit many massacres. They, they had no problems committing them. They would wipe out whole villages. Sometimes like blocks were almost wiped out. But well, where the controversy rises is the response by the Algerian government. And this is also where you have a, a the rise of the viewpoint that the Algerian government was also committing these massacres because in there were cases of massacres happening where the Algerian military were hundreds of meters away but they didn't respond to it so whether it's uh, the Algerian government doing the massacring themselves or whether it's the Algerian government like supplying splinter groups or trying to make as many splinters within the Islamist factions or whether it was just very very purposeful gross negligence the the Algerian government was heavily accused of allowing these massacres to happen facilitating these massacres to happen so um, that's the quick rundown summary of it the black sites that the CIA create in the beginning right after 9-11 so they created a bunch of these black sites before they had them up and running because um like the salt pit in afghanistan and guantanamo proper before they had these running they basically gave carte blanche for all these governments to crack down on people so like there's a lot of people who were just associated with the gia that the algerian government 
was arresting on behalf of the CIA and being held without charge, without a crime. So, like, you look at the, like, uh, measures to close Guantanamo to this day, but people don't realize how much bigger it was when it started. They had to filter through all these people. This is when I say that uh, the conspiracy that Al-Qaeda wanted America to invade Iraq, this is part of it. They knew that this was going on, and they had people who, they basically told everyone, like, oh, when you go down, tell them that we're giving Saddam weapons of mass destruction, right? Uh, God, what, Faraj al-Libi, he gets arrested at the same time as Abu Zubaydah, who needs to be freed from Guantanamo. They know he's innocent. But the other guy who used to work with him, who was doing uh, training camps, they ship him to Egypt, and he's tortured in Egypt. And that's where the uh, source, when you see the... Uh, if you go back and you look at archive footage, you'll see uh, Colin Powell. He holds up the vial of anthrax saying, like, this is what Saddam has. He talks about an anonymous source that gave him intelligence that this was happening. That anonymous source is this guy that was tortured in Egypt. So just what we know about torture, how it doesn't work. Um, it's it's easy for me to come up with the conspiracy that this was part of like the plan to get America to invade Iraq, but also they wanted the intelligence. They were saying, tell us about the weapons of mass destruction, you know? When the CIA examined the case, that this information was not credible because of the fact that it had been attained under Egyptian interrogation. They wrote that down. They warned the White House about this, and yet it was still used. Trace the story of a senior terrorist operative telling how Iraq provided training in these weapons to Al-Qaeda. After we went to Iraq, after we found out that there's no WMDs, after we found out that Al-Qaeda and Saddam were not working together, they went back to Ibn Sheikh al-Libi. And this is all according to the Armed Services Committee. And they asked him, why did you lie? He said, well, I gave you what you want to hear. He complied. Absolutely. I want the torture to stop. I gave you anything you want to hear. But the consequences of that... Tragic. Absolutely. The, the world is different. Actually, I think, too, is I was reading the book Anatomy of Terror by Ali Soufan. If I remember correctly, I, I remember in Afghanistan, this was like 2001 or something, he captures an Al-Qaeda guy. And the first thing the Al-Qaeda guy says to him is, when are you guys going to invade Iraq? <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that, but there you go. But um, it's funny because when I hear about like the Saddam WMD thing, uh, what I always think of is when... Uh, there was like an Al-Qaeda line group. I forgot. Abu, yeah, Abu Musab was Arakali. I forgot his name. Uh, he was trying to make actual chemical weapons in Northern Yeah, no, he, he, was a, he was a chemical weapons specialist. Yeah, he had yeah, uh, yeah. chemical weapon training camps in uh, like 92 uh, in Afghanistan. Yep. So, yeah. I just find it so, funny. How I mean, that part was true. Uh, the, also, the yeah. Kurdish Al-Qaeda faction, like there was yeah. a faction of Al-Qaeda there. But bin Laden hated this guy because he went up to bin Laden and he told him he didn't know shit about the Quran and that they had to kill all the Shia. And bin Laden essentially did the meme, I'll give you $100 to fuck off. That's literally what happened. Like, And then that guy just became the man because he knew how to run shit because he had he's a lifelong criminal. He knew how to run sure. shit and organize shit in uh, chaos like that. But um, just on the... Um, we were talking about the extremist side. I know... Uh, Ace wanted to get into whatever I can't pronounce it. Yeah, Hazmiya. Uh, so you're you're kind of one of like the few content creators on on a mainstream platform. I feel like address this. Do you do you mind giving like a, a little bit of background into Hazmiya and why it's 
he sort of became so so much more brutal than I guess you could say like other militant Islamist ideologies. Yeah, so uh, I wrote down some notes here. So, <laughs> so Hazamia is is best described as the teachings of a Saudi imam named Ahmed ibn Omar al Hazmi. So uh, Ahmed ibn Omar al Hazmi grew up in Saudi Arabia, so he comes from a uh, Salafi Wahhabi dominated interpretation of Islam, just where he grew up. So within uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab wrote a book called Nawakid al-Islam, the nullifiers of Islam. So practically what it says, if you do any of the things we list in this book, then you have taken yourself out of the fold of Islam and you cannot be considered a Muslim from the uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab interpretation of Islam. And real, real, real quick, at what, at what point is, is this guy alive and writing this stuff? He was, I don't know the specific year, but he was alive during the first Saudi state for Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. This was during a time when Wahhabis, as they were called, did not like the Saudi, not the Saudis, did not like the Ottoman Empire. The uh, the Nej state, the Wahhabi Nej state, the first Saudi state had viewed the Ottoman Empire and their government as illegitimate because they were, uh, they allowed Sufis to practice, they allowed, right. they weren't following uh, completely the Sharia, they're, they're adding their own forms of legal right. laws for people to follow. So during this time, there were many tribes in Arabia that were pretty neutral towards the Ottomans. They really didn't care what the Ottomans did or didn't do. So when this uh, idea of the third nullifier was presented, it said that you must call all the non-Muslims non-Muslims, and then you must call all the hypocrites non-Muslims too. That that viewpoint, it, the viewpoint practically says, if you don't condemn what we see as a hypocrite, then you're allowing that practice. You're saying it's equal to all Islamic practices. Therefore, you are changing the religion, and you are a hypocrite too. So we must condemn you. So. Th- that viewpoint was being propagated towards these Arab tribes that were very neutral towards the Ottomans. So it was practically saying, hey, if you don't condemn the Ottomans, then we see you as an enemy to us. So that whole nullifier of Islam, but especially the third nullifier, was being uh, pushed out towards all the other Arab tribes in uh, Arabia during this time. Because the, uh, the question of takfir, uh, takfir is practically to excommunicate, was a, uh, the question or the debate became one of are there uh, legal Islamic arguments from the Salafi viewpoint of the Sharia law where someone could say, you can't take fear me, I didn't know enough. This is seen as the excuse of the ignorance. And uh, like almost every Salafi uh, imam would say, yes, the excuse of the ignorance is a valid excuse. If someone doesn't know what they're doing is seen as haram from the Salafi viewpoint, then as a Salaf, they would, as a Salafi, they would give uh, evidence to this incorrect Muslim as they would see it. And then if this incorrect Muslim follows us, then he's cool. But if he doesn't, then he's continuing to, to be wrong. And depending on the level of what they're doing, it can be seen as like shirk, which would take you out of the fold of Islam. So um, uh, almost every Salafi would agree uh, Ignorance is a valid excuse, but where things really began to spiral is that Ahmed ibn Omar Hazmi said, no, ignorance of excuse does not exist when it comes to the topic of shirk, which is like uh, making a, a partners with God within Islam. 
I think almost every traditional Islamic school thought will agree there's there's no partners with the law. So that, that's like the vast majority of what Muslims would follow. But uh, the questions and arguments become one of like, well, if I vote, am I doing shirk? And with many of the political activismists, they'll say voting or politically active uh, violentismists, they'll say voting or helping your government or joining an army is shirk, you know, things of that sort. So um, once someone holds that viewpoint that doing a lot of things as normal in our current political world is shirk, and they also believe that you don't have to give, as they would say, evidence to people, that means that whole societies of Muslim countries can be simply tuck-feared. And they view tuck-fearing as like a religious requirement. You must tuck-fear whoever is seen when, as a Whereas generally, like, as a Muslim, like, it's kind of seen as like, if you're, you know, calling another person who claims to be Muslim, like, a kafir, mm-hmm. that's like a very serious accusation and a lot of other kind of like traditionalist views yeah. of Islam, Sunni Islam especially. I can't really speak for Shias personally because I'm not a Shia. I don't know enough about it. But it's like if you're good at takfir someone, like call them a kafir, you need to like have like substantial, you know, evidence to, to call them that. You know, it's it's not like an accusation that you should throw around lightly. Yeah. So Pico, we mentioned some terms that I want to get into. Um, the first of which of this is what a Salafi is. Uh so what makes Salafis very distinct from other Muslims, or at least when they initially started, was that many Muslims were following Sufi viewpoints or Mutazilite type viewpoints. And then the Salafis would have a lot of issues with that. Uh, some of the Salafis would say that the Islamic philosophy we're having is too influenced by Greek uh, philosophy. And then there were questions about like whether or not God has a hand or a leg and you know, a lot of deep Islamic golden age arguments that is completely out of my league. <laughs> but uh, that is what really made them different and distinct is that they have created and have their own like uh, tradition to follow. They will claim that their tradition goes all the way back to the Salafs, but other also older established Sunni Islamist schools will say, oh, well, we have our own, you know, imams who have links all the way back to the Salaf too. Uh, also, that's kind of where the Salafi and Wahhabi terms. That's are. what was my. You're leading into my next question, which I was going to say. A lot of people who would be labeled as Wahhabi will reject the term Wahhabi and say, "No, we're Salafi." Yeah, it, it's because for the there's even some arguments between historians about whether or not Wahhabism and Salafism is one thing, two separate things, or they sub is Wahhabism a subgroup of Salafism. But the reason that Wahhabis themselves don't like being called Wahhabis is, first of all, they view themselves as just simply Muslims, and some of them would like to call themselves monotheists. I, I forgot what it translates into Arabic. But Wahhadun. Uh, there, there we go. And then there's a lot of even back and forth about simply calling them just Muslim because then people say, well, are we pushing out Muslims that don't follow a Salafi or a Wahhabi viewpoint? So at least for me, I would like, if we could change terms, I'd say Wahhabi should be replaced with Salafis that follow a Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab interpretation. That would be a super long sentence. Yeah. 
it's, it's also just because like it's it's like a very third person term like nobody no muslim like completely unironically obviously that with some irony some people will be like yeah i'm a wahhabi like if that's no nobody nobody's gonna like call themselves that like at least with the term sufi even though like people tend to have there's like very like huge varying like ideas of what that means to be a sufi right but at least there are people who will like call themselves that you know what i mean versus with wahhabi it's like it's not really i feel like nobody's calling themselves that like yeah. at least from from like a Muslim perspective, it's not like it's not really like recognized as as anything besides like a third person term you can use to describe other people. But well, you know, how many was even used as an insult by the Ottoman Empires when they were fighting against the uh, Saudi state? Yeah, it, if if anything, it's it's mo- like it's fifty percent, at least fifty percent, a derogatory term used by like Muslims and non-Muslims. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. The Wahhabis also don't mind being called Salaf or Salafis don't like, I don't mind being called Salafi. They see that as a, someone as a, a badge of honor because they're following the way of the Salaf. <laughs> I just kind of wanted to like move this into a discussion about like political Islamism versus militant Islamism and how those two intersect because mm-hmm. I, I feel like a lot of people, at least like in the English speaking world, don't seem to understand how much Islamist groups can differ and how like political Islamism doesn't necessarily, it can, it can be mean in some cases that there is an overlap with militancy. But in a lot of cases, it's, it's really just like another political party in a, in a lot of cases. It's just like another group that wants to gain power through votes or through political means, campaigning, things like that. So I, I don't know, like, for example, I feel like I feel like a perfect example of this is kind of like the Muslim Brotherhood, just because of how big of a web of an organization they are. It's kind of like on the one hand, sometimes you have like just these very strictly political is whether or not you agree with their politics, they're, they're, they're very much still strictly political. They try to win votes through campaigning. I mean, at one point in, in, in Egypt in the 80s, at a, at a parliamentary level, the Muslim Brotherhood ha- had aligned with um, uh, a party that was like a kind of, I don't want to say like a, a workers party, but it was kind of like, like a social welfare party of sorts. And they were able to win a lot of parliamentary seats with that coalition because it was kind of like a lot of people like the conservative values and like Muslim values of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they like kind of like the economic guarantees that the that the sort of like um uh, like this like social welfare party kind of had so i just find it interesting but at the same time i think you know in a lot of ways you you see just kind of like you can see that the that the muslim brotherhood does have some some ties or in some areas they have some ties to like to for, former militants or current militants and you know some of their supporters may have like a tendency to enact some political violence things like that so i just kind of wanted to get like your thoughts on that kind of just the whole situation of that you could just kind of go from there yeah i think uh a lot of people in like uh the western non-muslim political scenes they tend to view islamism as okay the inherent default viewpoint of islamists is armed struggle or you know terrorism or things of that sort um Usually how I view the Islamist groups is one of 
okay, they're a political group who follows a political ideology, and most all political ideologies have some acceptance of, of violence to a certain extent. So then I kind of view them through that lens of, okay, uh, most people don't want to live through an insurgency. Most people don't want to live the life of a guerrilla, you know, so most people will try to go through official means, you know, elect, electoral or legal, judicial, thing, things of that sort. Um, that's usually how I view it. I know, especially in Indonesia, they have multiple Islamist political parties that will like fracture and then try to gain votes against each other. But then in other places, it's a shootout. Um, I really just see it as a, a case by case where they um, overlap, especially where I've noticed where you see a rise of militancy and maybe an acceptance of militancy from uh, what we would call moderate Islamist groups is usually when either we, we see that in places like in Syria where stability is gone practically, or we'll see it where there's very harsh government um, crackdowns like in, in Algeria. Uh, I know in many cases, um, a lot of Islamists I've seen will criticize uh, other Islamists that participate in like elections as useless. And usually they'll say, look what happened in Algeria. There was a coup. Look what happened in Egypt. There was a coup, you know. But then at the same time, you know, you still had, like you had a Salafi political party support the coup against Mohamed Morsi, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the Al-Nur party, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, but that, okay. So keep that in mind because now we're about to get into some real fucking terminally online discourse in a little bit. But what I did want to <laughs> um, say about like the crackdowns, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with like the Arab civil war and a lot of like the state paranoia that certain Arab governments had about like Islamists possibly gaining power is a lot of these like, and speaking for Egypt here, just cause that's like, that's where my background is. And that's kind of what I understand is like a lot of these guys who go on in Egypt to become like very radical is that it's like they were just kind of like po politically active Islamists, you know, they would meet up and they would campaign and they would campaign on behalf of the Muslim Brotherhood or whatever. They would attend Muslim Brotherhood meetings or other like vaguely Islamist meetings and stuff. And then they get thrown in prison yeah. with like actual like bad people and like, you know, like insurgents and, you know, people who had been in there for a while. And that's kind of where their views would be, would get more like hardcore, we could say more militant. And that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because it, it does seem like there is like, um, just kind of throughout the Arab world is, is that it's like, it, it almost similar to the United States in a way, but like on steroids is that there's like a, is that there's like a gateway when like someone, someone goes to jail or they get tortured or they get sent to a, like a black site or a camp or whatever, where it's like they, their views like go from like, yeah, I feel like we should politically campaign for Islamic law in insert country here to like, okay, we need to violently overthrow the government. Yeah. There's like a point where in which that happens. And I, I think, I think a lot of just kind of like violent Islamism in general can be attributed to the fact that, for example, people like the al-Assad regime, the, the Nasser in Egypt, the Algerian government, whoever, were like so insanely afraid of any possibility of Islamist political power that they kind of just purged them out. 
like literally and figuratively, you know, and, and, and not just that, but like, for example, if we look at Syria, right, like the Hama, the Hama massacre in like the, I believe it was the 80s with uh, Hafez al-Assad, the kind of official Assad regime line is like, well, we were sort of um, trying to destroy the interests of like some violent Muslim Brotherhood members in that area. But in, in, in a lot of cases, they were also just straight up killing civilians. I, I guess kind of like the thing that I kind of wanted to ask you is because like you you that a lot of your videos which are great by the way that you do kind of do tend to tend to do a lot of looking into on this topic um what do you, what sort of like um differences do you do you like how how, how big is in, in essence the range of, of differences with like just strictly militant Islamists? Like, how, how different are our groups generally from one another? How wide can Islamist arguments be? And I, I would say very wide, because uh, it could be one of a question of tactics. Are we going to bomb civilians today? Okay, who is a civilian today? That's mostly one between uh, the FIS and the GIA. It could be a, a purely political argument over recruitments, which GIA and their, uh, or FIS, not FIA, excuse me. <laughs> so then uh, you have those cases, but it could even be the implementation of uh, Sharia law. Uh, that's between um, the awakening in Iraq. Many of these Sunni uh, Iraqi insurgent groups were very mad with how Al-Qaeda was operating because they were very harsh towards uh, Sunni tribal uh, elders. So then it could be that. It could be a religious type of thing. Hezbollah does not like Al-Qaeda and vice versa. Um, Hezbollah in themselves even had little internal splits with the leadership where when Hezbollah uh, began to shift towards like, we will be an electoral, uh, we will participate in the Lebanese electoral system. There were many uh, leaders who said, no, Hezbollah is purely a revolutionary group against Israel and to defend the Shiite community. But as these, uh, as Hezbollah began to shift towards being also a political party, there were splits over that because it's a question of how pure can Hezbollah stay if they participate in Lebanese politics on that level. Uh, we already saw the Hezbollah one. Uh, Sunni Shiite splits are always going to be a thing there. And uh, Money is very, money, <laughs> it, it costs yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> but that's kind of where Azam and Osama bin Laden had a split was over money to a certain extent because Osama was like, okay, let's, I'm bringing in all this money and then we're not like blowing up Russian tanks. What's the big idea? And Abdul Azam was like, with the money, we're going to organize rockets to, to send to Afghan fighters. Anything, it could be from like a, a genuine religious split a genuine ideological split. Some guy looked at me the wrong way. Now we're competing for recruitments and, you know, everything. I guess I would go after that. <laughs> Just with um, the disagreements between MAK, Mekdal Kadema, I think they're called. Ace is better at pronouncing these words than me. And uh, then, like, the Al-Qaeda leadership. When Islamic Jihad from Egypt came in, there's a lot of uh, accounts from people who were part of uh, MAK 
about how after the Egyptians came in, they would like surround Bin Laden and like nobody can see the wizard type shit where they would like, if people tried to talk to Bin Laden, they would literally like pick him up and carry him away. It's like how it was described. So this is why um, I uh, have the whole like conspiracy mindset that they killed Azam to take over MAK Mm -hmm. because um, people don't realize this, that Al-Qaeda was a charity organization. (laughs) <laughs> before it was a terrorist organization. Honestly, I, I kind of want to just briefly touch on the uh, the conflict in, in the West Sahara and kind of just w- what that's about. Just give us a quick rundown of that. The Western Sahara was owned by the Spanish and Morocco was owned by the French. And then the French left Morocco and Morocco saw Western Sahara as a part of them because they had ruled Western Sahara for a very long time historically and then the uh, western sahara had their own little protests and their own little uh, liberation movement going on the spanish would later on leave western sahara many of these liberation and uh, protest movements were then anticipating that they'd take control and then uh, maybe it was independence or maybe it was maybe a vote towards morocco i'm not sure because they just never had the position you know so what had happened is Morocco declared this thing called the Green March, where they marched in a whole bunch of Moroccans into uh, Western Sahara. Many of the already established Western Sahara rebel groups, many of the protest groups, independence movement groups said, hey, Morocco, you guys can't come any deeper into Western Sahara. This is our territory. We, we uh, they're their own people, uh, want to uh, take our own uh, destiny, for lack of better words. The Moroccan government said, oh, no, this has always been ours. The European colonial borders are gone, washed away. And then a conflict would begin between the Moroccan military and the Western Sahara liberation groups. That would go on until um, the conflict is kind of frozen in time right now. Uh, Morocco controls practically the entire coastline and many of the economically developed parts of Western Sahara. They started building these long security walls all up and down the border. And um, for the Western Sahara groups, they tend to control the uh, the desert sections, I guess the internal regions of Western Sahara. And since it, then it's been a, a very frozen conflict. There's been a lot of, it's kind of like a North Korea, South Korea type situation. That's how I, I, I kind of see it as, where both sides don't want to blink. One side, i.e. Morocco continually gets better military equipment uh, just because they're a more established country. Western Sahara has, if I remember correctly, in a recent news report, they were talking about how Iran was actually giving supplies to Western Sahara. They're trying to teach them how to make uh, their own little homemade drones. So that's that's kind of where the situation is, <laughs> last I checked. B- besides like territorial claims, is there any is there any other reason like outside of that 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 Morocco might might want the Western Sahara outside of maybe like an expanded coastline? Uh, for, at least from the research I had done, it was for, I just saw an idea that it was ours in the past. Cause even Mauritania wanted to take parts of Western Sahara because right. they had controlled that in the past too. At least from what okay. I remember, it was just that right. we had it. Okay. I think. So, so to wrap, you want to just uh, do the standard, sorry, my chinchilla's up. Um, just do the standard, uh, this is... Oh, okay. 
this, this is, is where I am, blah, 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 blah. Here's my channel. I'll throw it. Th- I normally don't, but I'll probably try to remember to put a link uh, embedded and stuff. Even- Let's go. <laughs> uh, I am Bazistan, uh, famous, most famous YouTuber ever. No, I'm, uh, I'm Bazistan. I mostly do historical videos on the Middle East and mostly uh, towards Islamist groups. Um, a running joke I have with lightning that I'm doing this for you too. <laughs> I am mostly 2D animated drawing. I'm going to let everyone in on a secret. I swear to God, my next video is going to be the best one I've ever done. I'm making like comic book effects and all of that. So you should really check it out. Uh, I have a Twitter. You can find it on my YouTube. Go check out my YouTube. Um, If you like professionalism, stick to my YouTube. If you want to see me say some crazy stuff, follow me on Twitter. I think that's, that's it. Yeah, I, I found, um, I'm pretty sure the way I found your channel was looking up information on the Grand Mosque Siege. And like, you you probably had the most informed video that I've, I mean, I'm sure there's more videos now because political, like the polyball stuff, like that's all taken yeah. off. But yeah, you were like the first guy I found where I was like, oh, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. Ah, let's go. I got the seal of approval. <laughs> one thing i did actually just like kind of like a wrap-up question is like uh as as far as your drawing goes how long does that usually take like how's the whole process go like how how does that usually go down when i first started off it used to take every day just to do one frame and then i've I've slowly built resiliency i can't pronounce words right now. dexterity dexterity there we go (laughs) so um as of now, most frames I do will take about a, a few hours to do the drafting. And then I got to draw another layer, which is the outline and the line art. Then I color it. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy with the next video I have in the works, which is I'm trying my best to make it look like a comic book. I have like angles cutting the screen in half. I'm having little boxes fade in and fade out. I'm referencing a lot of drawings from like other animes and avatar and looking at how they draw eyebrows um so it, it's a constant battle i've i've kind of reached a point where i'm very uh confident in how my art style is so the next part is just seeing how far i could i could pull it until i gotta switch up or keep on going <laughs> i'm excited comic book style video sounds pretty cool yeah.